the point is that the Bay Area is the innovation capital of the world. And all, Google now has offices in every city in the world. Apple has offices in every city in the world. Facebook has offices in every city in the world. But all these companies started here because the incubation infrastructure for starting a company in terms of talent and capital and will, ability to fail is best set up here in the Bay Area. And that is even proving to be true in a year in which everyone wants to write this place off. The other thing to remember is, I don't know if anybody has an iPhone, this thing, or I don't know if it's been, anyone been on Google today. And I know everyone likes to pretend they don't use Facebook, but that thing you guys call, use called Instagram, it's not a Coke dealer. It's actually owned by Facebook, right? And for people in the rest of the world that realize that text message sucks, that thing, WhatsApp, that's also Facebook. So this idea that ideas come from here and go to the world is not new. And, you know, three of you look at the FANG companies, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, and Google, what share of those are based here in the Bay Area? And all of these companies have hired a very significant number of people, but not requested that they come to work yet. So there's a tremendous amount of employment demand sitting on the sidelines that I believe will start to show up in 2022. And one thing everybody can say is the office is dead. Yeah, if nobody's at the office, there's no point to go there. But at some point, if your manager's at the office or the CEO's at the office, sometimes it can be helpful to get FaceTime with those people to advocate for your ideas, your solutions, et cetera. And when everybody's on Zoom, yeah, it's easy to work from home, but the more people are in the office, if you're not the one in the room, to quote Hamilton, you know, in the room when it happened, in the room when it happened, your idea may not be the one that won the day. And so I think as it relates to the rental world, the amount of venture funding and the amount of hiring by our core companies, as those people are required to come to the office, not five days a week, and I don't think that's coming back, but even one day a week, will have a tremendous impact on the rental market in the Bay Area. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. I know what you're thinking. Here goes Chris talking about Fort Capital again, but guys, it's important to me. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas. That's why my Twitter handle is Fort Worth Chris. We have a track record of transacting more than $1.4 billion in assets throughout Texas. That's crazy to me. 17 years ago, I bought my first house for $100,000. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $10 and $75 million throughout the major markets of Texas. In fact, Fort Capital was named the fastest growing real estate company in Texas by Inc. Magazine last year. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Riaz, welcome uh, to the show. I'm really excited about today. I think I'm more excited than you, Chris. It's very exciting. I have to say, I and I told you this when we first met, um, and I actually told my assistant, I need to get better at this. Your preparation skills are about as good as they get, not only for a podcast, but how you walk me through your business. I'm thoroughly impressed. So I know the audience is going to love this show. 
I hope you're not setting expectations above reality. <laughs> There's nothing worse in life than being like, oh, this is going to be great. Like, oh, that wasn't actually that great. It's going to be great, man. You have a great story. And let's let's just start with that. You currently run Riaz Capital out of San Francisco, the Bay Area, I should say. Can you start with just kind of how you grew up and how you got to the business that you're running today? I'd love to. I grew up in a real estate family. And I called the, it was the do good, do well household. So my dad ran a small kind of niche real estate business focused on doing condo conversion work, which was kind of a, not a big deal, but it was something to do in the seventies and eighties. And my mother was the PR director at one point of Planned Parenthood. And my stepdad ran an organization called the Sierra Club. So there was always this, like, as I envisioned kind of the paradigm of my life or the framework for what I would eventually want to do when I graduate from college, it was like, how do I do something where I can have a nice life and do something that's socially positive for the community around me? And I grew up dyslexic. So I actually had a hard time in school, had a hard time getting into high school. Anyways, I eventually went to the USC and then on to the London School of Economics. And I've been running kind of my own business since I was 22 years old. And when you're dyslexic, you, unlike some people, you kind of have a very skewed skill set. And so as a result, I've been very lucky for the last you know, almost 10 years now to have built this team around myself to basically cover for the parts of my skewed skill set that are that I needed a lot of help. And I've had this really supportive, awesome team. From a strategy point of view, you know, I've had two jobs most of my life. One is running a business. One is kind of being a caretaker for our overall family. And, you know, in 2001, 2008, you know, we saw we had two businesses typically. One was doing kind of some version of a luxury housing strategy, which was, you know, my da- dad's era was the condo conversion business. And we had always a workforce housing portfolio since the 90s. And then when I kind of took over, I did kind of luxury renovation projects. So five, $10 million homes, but this is, you know, 15 years ago. And what I saw, whether it was 2001, 2008, or even now in 2020, is that the luxury end of the market takes a much bigger hit. So your revenues, you know, for a short period of time can be very effective. And so in both in caring for the family and wanting to grow a sustainable and scalable business, how do I do that where I can run through cycles, knowing that cycles exist without being concerned that the cycle could take me out? So, you know, today what we are is, you know, basically a 30 person firm focused on workforce housing. I call it micro living because I don't think the term workforce housing is so great. You know, like the workers, like, oh, that sounds so great. Or like the old days, we'd call it class C apartments. I'm like, so I got a C? I didn't know that I was being graded here. So, you know, we came up with the term micro living for the idea of saying, hey, this is a premium quality experience. Maybe the units are a little smaller, but it's not going to take away from your day to day life and trying to create a positive energy around creating what is fundamentally affordable house. Yep. Before we get into that, and I've got a lot of questions about that, there's two things you said about growing up that I just want to dig in a little deeper on on the personal side. Do good, do well. A lot of folks that listen to this, including myself, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. How did your parents instill this in the family? Like, was there certain traditions? Was it messaging? Like, how did that begin to resonate? That sounds like a great thing to kind of grow up with that kind of theme in the household. No, thanks for asking. So both my parents were children of the 60s, right? I think to give my dad some credit, he probably would have stayed on the do-good side of the world if he wasn't worried about paying a mortgage. 
But there was definitely very much an energy in my house, you know, being a person for others. And, you know, my two biggest mentors in my life were my, were my dad and my uncle Oz. He's not actually my uncle, but I refer to him as my uncle Oz, who were both developers. But there was very much this like community, like if you were going to consider yourself a successful man or a successful woman, you are not successful if you're only looking out for yourself and your own. You have to be looking out for those around you. And so I think there was definitely a messaging around that. And just the way people talk about other people, like that person's a low life, but that person made billions of dollars. Yeah, low life. You guy does nothing for anybody else. Like, I think how people, we talked about that in the house was very clear. Number two, watching my mom, my dad, and my stepdad work very hard, regardless about whether they were making money or trying to do something socially positive. There was no difference in the way in which they worked, regardless of the outcome they were trying to attain. So kind of lead by example. And the third thing is a total testament to my mom, which is that my mom would take us to do, whether it was, you know, feedings at St. Anthony's or taking us to like, you know, I don't remember Mother Teresa, but literally taking us to Mother Teresa orphanages in Delhi, where we got to see what true poverty looks like. So we had a kind of a sense of where we sat in the world. Or, you know, in 2001, there were these, 2002, there were very bad riots in Gujarat. My mother took me and my sister to see what does a riot look like? And so understanding the level of privilege that we grew up with and understanding that the expectation was that if you were going to think of yourself as somebody who wanted to lead, you have to lead both for yourself and for the however you define your community. And for me, as someone who is partially South Asian, I've always defined my community as obviously, number one, my family. Number two, the Bay Area community that I grew up in, I feel so proud to call home. And to the part South Asian you know, what can I do in a small way, you know, philanthropically in India? And I've basically broken up my philanthropic work in those two areas. I love it, man. Well, thank you for sharing that. That means a lot. I'm a, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and I constantly think about this stuff. I want them to grow up to be... Take them to see poor people, right? And it, and it can't be like one day, one day we went and did this. It has to be like part of the routine. Like it was literally our summer routine. Like, Oh, you guys are going to camp? Oh, I'm going to work in an orphanage with my little sister and my mom in 48 degrees centigrade heat with no air conditioning. So that's going to be my summer. Was there like a time as a kid where it just kind of clicked and you were like, oh my gosh, I can imagine what you just said. If you just go once, you know, maybe you don't get the full effect, but because of how your mom did it, was there a time that you just kind of remember vividly having a moment where... You just something maybe you'd never forget the rest of your life? That's a really good question. You know, it was such a constant, you know, and I also wanted to say Ignatius, which is a Jesuit school, and the definition of being a nation is a person for others. And so I think that a person for others. So I would say the moment that like comes to my mind without thinking about it very much is, you know, in 2002, when this riots happened in Gujarat, I was 21 years old, and my mother took me to meet all of these widows that had been you know, left without their primary breadwinner in Gujarat. And I thought to myself, like, I can't imagine this happening to somebody I care about, right? And how can I prevent, you know, in my small way, people from ending up in that circumstance? I think on the housing front, in terms of like when that clicked, it's like we both grew up with like both our parents, right? And you want to make your parents proud. That's just kind of how you're, you're wired as a kid. And I always wanted to make my parents proud. And I, I wanted to have a fun life. And so for most of my life, and my stepdad kind of was this relatively famous environmentalist. And so it's like, how do I bring these influences together? 
And I was reading an article in, in terms of how what I do now in Dwell Magazine on the flight back from London. And this guy was building houses at 100 bucks a foot. And I was like, this is amazing. I could build cool houses because I'm a design guy. I could do it in West Oakland and they could be affordable. You know, that guy never called me back. I think I called him 20 times. His name was William Macy. W- William, if you're listening, call <laughs> me back one of these days. And then I basically set out to have this career trying to build like aesthetic, affordable and profitable houses. Got it. All right. Now let's, I'm going to pivot back because now we'll take what you've learned and now what you're doing today. So you, you described it not as affordable housing, but I believe you said micro units, micro living. Let's just talk about kind of set the base for what that is and where you're doing it. And then we'll start really getting into the details of how you're doing it. Micro living is the fundamental, what's the fundamental problem that we're solving? And the problem that we're solving is if you think about in the 1950s, there was this idea of, you know, the suburbs were this idea of the perfection. Like you're seeing these ads from the 1950s, like people dancing around their appliances in this beautiful suburb. And there was this effort to make the city like the suburb. And so there was a lot of things attached to building housing, which in essence made, you know, whether it's parking or open space, it all sound great, but perfect became the enemy of the good. So the problem that we're solving for today in the Bay Area or in many urban markets, that if you earn median income, you cannot afford a studio or one bedroom anywhere in those areas. So people commute from far distances, live with their parents, which if you ever did that in your 20s and 30s, it's not very exciting. Live with roommates, you know, know, pre-pandemic, for example, in a place like San Francisco, people were paying literally 1200 bucks for a bunk in a room that you're sharing it with three other people. I don't know about you, Chris, but it was a long time when I thought sleeping in a bunk bed with three other people in the same room was very exciting. It's like, okay, how can we make living in urban areas for people who make median income more appealing? And so what we did was, it's not one problem. So you had to peel back the onion, which is to say, okay, we want this to be a nice place to live. In order for this to be sustainable, it can only cost roughly three times their income in order to build it. So we got to bring the cost down. And it can't take seven years to build a project. This is ridiculous. So it has to happen in a reasonable period of time. And so if we can accomplish that, we can do something interesting. So what is this today? Pretty simple. They're buildings where we're building slightly smaller apartments or than you would have on average in an urban market. So they may be significantly smaller than you would see in Texas. But here in the Bay Area, they'd be a little bit smaller. We're building far less parking and we're fundamentally building simpler buildings. And so just said simply, less parking, wood frame building, smaller apartments. And by doing those three things, we're able to deliver a, a housing at 250K a residence and to build these things in 30 months. So we're building at 40 cents on the dollar of the Bay Area average in roughly 40% of the time. All right. Now we're going to get into the weeds. I love it. Okay, let's start with timeline, because when I was talking to you on the pre-call, I was like, man, development takes long in Texas. But when I hear from my California buddies, these projects that take seven years, I I kind of asked you, like, how do you even underwrite a deal that takes seven years to build? If you had done something seven years ago where we were to where we are now, I'm just there's no way you could stay on track. But you said, no, we do it in 30 months. So let's start there. What are you able to do that gets you to 30 months that the average developer's taken seven years on? So look, I mean, you know, here in California and California is an awesome place and it's a beautiful place to live, 
but we make things something a little more complicated than they need to be. So the first step in any acquisition process is what can I build here and what's wrong with this thing? And most of those problems we're solving and resolving prior to acquisition. Once we acquire the site, we seek to get a permit. And basically, you want to work within the zoning code that you have available to you on a given site. So when you seek variances or favors or anything like that, it extends the process. And so we fundamentally have operated, Chris, under two schema. Schema number one is the small project designation, which is that cities almost everywhere in California give smaller projects a slightly similar, more administrative process to process three. That's option A. The exciting new thing that we're able to do now is we're able to use the California state density bonus. And this is like you're a total nerd from high school. Like, <laughs> oh my God, what are you excited about, Bobby? <laughs> oh my God, mommy, I've got a density bonus. You're like, hold on a second. But that's what, I've, that's what we get excited about over here, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, a few years back, a few legislators were like, well, we're not producing any housing, Cato. What should we do? <laughs> Let's make it easier, Bob. Anyways, so what do we have is a state law, which basically provides, if you provide a certain amount of moderate, affordable, et cetera, housing, low income, very low income housing, you get an administrative review period, plus you get concessions to local uh, code, right? And so what that did for us was create a administrative process. So when you fact when you so what does that actually mean after all that gibberish? You know, the nerd found the code, nerd designed the project. What did you actually get? We literally just got a project approved in three and a half months. So we have another one that we did in six months. I think we've gotten two and six and one three and a half now. Now that's through the entitlement phase of the project. We still have to finish our building permit, but the risk is all in the entitlement. And look, we owe a great degree of gratitude to our state legislators, specifically Scott Weiner and Nancy Skinner, because this will improve the problem over a period of time. You just think of it from a society, like it can't be unaffordable to live someplace and for you to call that place an equitable place in the world. And so, so anyway, so just keep it simple. We try and deal with all the big problems pre-acquisition. During entitlement, we, we decide, are we going to use, are we going to do California state density bonus? Here in Oakland, there's some other things, but that's the big piece of it. The second piece is you got to design a simple building. And Chris, I don't know how many things you've built in your career, but you know, ever since I was a little kid, you know, with my dad, we were building stuff. And you know, whether we're renovating a bathroom or, and I remember I did a project. I may not have gotten all the necessary permits, but I did a project where I don't remember Big Brother TV. I've heard of it, but I don't. I don't think I ever watched it. You shouldn't. Okay. Don't go, right. Don't change that. But they had this ridiculous TV show called Big Brother and they used our house in Napa as the jury house. Right. And they shot part of the show from there. And they're like, hey, we need three more bedrooms. Like, no problem. I'll convert my barn six weeks, three bedroom, two bath, two kitchen house, no problem. And I literally built a building in six weeks. And what you learn is, okay, if you just say, how do I make this work? I got to make it work you could do a lot more than expecting the status quo. And what I learned from whether it was like building a hundred houses, building a guest house in my house in Napa, now building multiple different buildings is keep it simple, stupid. The simpler the building, and that doesn't mean it's low quality. You just keep it simple. And it's no one decision that creates a problem. It's the collective bad decisions that creates the problem. So big picture, we're basically building a wood frame building 
over a slab, probably quite similar to how you build townhouses in Texas. And so we have a three-story townhouse type structure. We can build those in, call it nine to 12 months, but what I'd call a mid-rise building, which is a five-story apartment building over a slab, which we can build in, let's call it, you know, 14 to 16 months. And what we're avoiding doing wherever at almost all costs is building a complicated podium or steel structure at the base. And what that does, and we're not going into the ground. These two things have both proven to be very important from a cost control point of view, Chris. When everyone's talking about supply chain, talking about you know material costs going up, A, and B has made it easier to keep projects on schedule. And so when I when I started to do this and I had a mentor who said to me, Riaz, anytime you want to invest in a business, you want to invest in a business a moron could run, because eventually there'll be a moron running it. I thought to myself, that's a pretty good point, right? You know, Peter Principle kind of idea. So I applied that to construction. I want to build a building that any moron could build, not because I want morons building buildings, but simply because I want to make it, I want there to be as much availability of labor, materials for the type of building I'm building, and no one vendor has pricing power on me. And that is that was a strategic decision four years ago, and it's fundamentally been paying off. It has been paying off, and I have I want to break down what you just said there's a couple of things I want to break down, but before I do that real quick, do you all self-perform GC or do you bid out everything with third-party GCs? Great question. So we started, I really wanted to build a vertically integrated company, Chris, where we do everything, whether it's cleaning toils, toilets, or putting two by fours up. I want to do it ourselves. And my three partners were like, you know, Riaz, as much as fun as that's going to be, we're not going to do this. So we fundamentally have gone to a, from a vertically integrated company to what I call a vertically managed company. So we have an internal team, depending on what the function is, that oversees a third party, whether it's property management, construction, design, entitlement, legal, et cetera. And so we have self-performed a tremendous amount of construction over the course of the last 20 years. Today, we are self-performing only adaptive reuse work, and we're not self-performing any ground-up construction. So I still think in adaptive reuse, when you're converting a church to apartments, an industrial building into a small business center, a hotel into 130 apartments. For our adaptive reuse business, I still think it's helpful, but we're completely not doing it anymore on the ground up side of the equation. And quite frankly, we found that in some cases, the GC is faster than us. And in some cases, the GC is slower than us. Okay. On the GC side, are you guys, are, do you bid out every project or do you have the same GC that you use every time? It's a combination of the two concepts, right? So what I found at the beginning part of my, so the answer to the question, and then I'll explain it, is that we have three contractors that we have very good relationships with, and we try and work between those three people as much as possible, but not it's not religious. And so the idea is that everybody knows they, they're not guaranteed a project because somebody else will have bid it. And everybody knows that as long as they're doing a good job, they can think of us is what I call a base load customer. In other words, we're a very reliable source for between 20 and 50% of their business. So my the business concept that I have with all my vendors is I want to be an important part of their business. And I want them to be an important part of my business. And so basically, and I had this uh, buddy of mine named Chris Kawaja who explained this to me. He's like, I want to be your base load customer. I'm like, well, that's a good idea. I want to be everybody else's base load customer too. Translation is you don't get to make too much money out of me, right? I'll be here all the time, but you don't get to make too much money. And so... As a general rule, we want to be above 10% of the 
business than any one of our vendors does. And we want to be, and we don't want to be above 50 probably. So like we have a contractor that's doing 25 million in revenue and we're giving them a $10 million job. We probably can't give them much more than one project. If we have a contractor that's doing 100 million, we could give them up to a 50 million, right? Because we don't want their whole business to be dependent on us. Because then when you say, hey, it's not working, you actually are creating all these other domino effects that you don't necessarily want to be a part of, yep. right? That's super smart. I've done 185 episodes and a lot of those with developers that I've never heard that. That's awesome. All right. You're in five of the nine counties. Talk to me just real quick about how zoning works where y'all are. Are most of the areas you're in kind of blanket zoned? And so you know kind of when you see a site what it's already zoned or a lot of these things that you're rezoning or higher and better use zoning from previous zoning? Great question. So the Bay Area is like the Balkans. One thing to remember the Bay Area, we have 101 municipalities in a place where most people would have one county area. And what's great about, you know, when you create small cities is everybody thinks their little corner should be something special. And so now you play that out after over 100 years and you, you've got the, I mean, you got the Balkans of cities and then you got another layer of Balkans below that, which is the zoning maps. And so, look, there's been a big effort on the behalf of cities to simplify this. But fundamentally, you could be you could walk in a five block radius and you could cross over four or five different zones. So understanding the zoning maps, some part of the Bay Area cities are what we call FAR zoning, Chris, which is pretty good. You got, you know, you got a 10,000 square foot lot. Your FAR is called three and you can build 30,000 feet up to a certain height limit. That's pretty simple to process. In other cities, we have what's called unit-based density, where basically you're allowed a certain number of units per square foot, and you get bonuses and deductions for different types of activities. So the complexity of, it's not that this process has been made simple by the density bonus, it's been made more assured by the density bonus. Yep. And then on the housing bonus, why would you not elect to use the California density bonus? That's a good question. So... The economic value that the density bonus is creating is coming in twofold. Number one is time. So that's very important. The second thing is in cost savings, okay, by setbacks. But the biggest one by far is managing the parking ratio. So if you're building luxury housing, and Chris, I've only met you a couple of times, but would you ever buy or rent a hot apartment without a parking spot? <laughs> no, especially not in Texas. Okay. Maybe not in San Francisco either, if we're going to be honest with each other, right? So the idea is that like by catering our design to a customer that is potentially maybe a little bit younger, maybe a little bit ur more urban and without children, the probability that they don't need a car is higher. And so our ability to design with, with less parking is more probable. So for a developer building luxury housing, the fact that you can't build parking doesn't really add any value to you. For us where we're very focused on being what I call a sustainable solution. We want to be affordable housing. We want to contribute to you know lower emissions, et cetera. It's perfect. So that's why we've dug into it so much more. We've always thought of ourselves as a moderate income housing developer and builder and operator. And to be clear, I know I probably should ask at the beginning, just because we're calling it kind of, we're, I know we're not calling it affordable housing, but your tenants are not receiving any type of stipend from the government. These are private pay tenants that earn money from the, the market. They, you are just delivering a unit at a price point that can very well compete with the competition in the market. That's right. So basically, our units are basically designed to meet a price point, which is 
which ties more or less to median income rents. Some of our units will be deed restricted, which is the element of the density bonus, and some of them will be not. But fundamentally, they're all designed to try and fit into some category of affordability, whether it's moderate or low income rentals. At the moment, we're using no publicly subsidized sources of capital. So we're raising money from typical investors to build projects and provide housing. Got it. Okay. Then you said simple plans. We des- we develop simple and easy to understand buildings. So when I hear that, I probably think, and then I want to get into how the actual units lay out themselves and what you're doing actually inside the unit. But before we get inside the unit, I'm imagining you have lots of stock plans. These buildings are almost like Legos. You know how to kind of connect them all together. And that is how you can stamp these out very consistently without reinventing the wheel. That's a guess. How are you doing it? That's pretty much exactly right. So basically, based on the zoning code for a few different areas, we've designed unit types, right, which are the Legos. And you've, you know, when I was a kid, we had simple Legos. We have the two-dot Legos, the four-dot Legos, the eight-dot. That was it. Now they've got lots of Legos. So we try and keep the number of different unit types to about 15. Then depending on, and we're trying not to build very much parking, and we're trying to make sure that there's a much, bunch of amenities in the area. So, for example, if we're close to Berkeley campus, we will build more student housing style layouts and we'll pull from that Lego set. If we're near, for example, Square, you know, the, the, the finance company is based in Oakland. If we're near Square, we might make the unit sizes a little bit bigger. If we're near Twitter, we might change the unit sizes. And if we're right next to a parking garage, we might change them again. So, what we do is we take those Lego pieces and depending on the site, the location, the rents we can get, you know, the market, the market demand, the comp set, we put together the Legos in an appropriate way for that site. So we're trying to standardize as much as possible on what I call a strategy basis or on the template and then modify as little as possible on a project by project basis. Got it. Before we get into the unit, one more question. What amenities in these type of properties matter? Is it a dog park? Is it a co-working space? Like what, what matters in these buildings or do they do you not have any amenities? So when the projects are like, it's called 30 to 70 residences, they probably don't have any amenities. And I'm, at the end of the day, I'm a math guy, right? So everything's a ratio. So when I was designing even houses for billionaires, I'm like, oh, you have to have a ratio of bedrooms to private space bedrooms to public space. In a project, you want to have a ratio of residences to shared space. So when you have, as the building gets bigger, you can afford to introduce some amenities, but you only want to introduce amenities that drive value. So the three most essential amenities in a place like Oakland, which is very flat and warm, is bike parking, number one. Number two, these are not in exact order. Number two is the gym. That is a perceived value for people. And number three now is these work pods where if you, let's say you're living with your, if you're lucky enough to have a pretty wife or pretty girlfriend, or in my case, pretty boyfriend, and let's say you just want to get away from them to make a phone call, God forbid, that can't be impossible. And so, you know, those are the three amenity sets that we've built in. In most projects, we'll also have like something like a self-serve cafe, kind of like a, a room that you can rent to have a party and people... I don't like video games. People like video games these days. We actually have all these little media rooms built into the building. Every building has what I call redundant space. And the the question is like, we first designed to maximize units. 
We then figure out how much redundant space we have. And then we figure out what's the best way of programming that redundant space. We're not building things like dog washing stations into most projects because if you can't necessarily afford a place to live, you really don't care whether or not the, that place has a dog washing station or not. <laughs> yeah. You shouldn't really be spending that extra. Yeah, I got you. Okay. And then you had one statistic, and I know we're going to get inside the unit in a second, but it was that family households have dropped from 69% to 29%. Why did you share that stat? What is, why does that matter? Yeah. So basically, so there's two big stats to be focused on. And most of the planning code was designed for 1950s America. Let's say in 1968, a few years later, 68 for 69%, let's call it 70% for easy math. 70% of America was lived between the age of 23 and 38 was living with children in the household. Fast forward to 2019, and only 30% of American households in that age gap have children living at home. In other words, housing was designed for the concept of the family household. The reality is the family household as a share of urban households has fallen to a half of what it was. In other words, a flip-flop. Today, only 30% of American households between the age of 23 to 38 have children living at home, okay? Housing has not changed. It's that fundamentally we're producing the same type of units. So what I set out to do is say, look, every stage of life drives a certain type of housing. And Chris, whether you and I like it or not, we probably spent some time in student housing. That was probably pretty fun. And whether we like it or not, we're probably going to end up in some senior home one day <laughs> when our kids are like, I'm tired of dealing with you, dad. <laughs> right. And so, but along the way, we make a few stops. But fundamentally, our thesis is based upon the idea that we need a certain type of housing to plug the gap between student housing and typical multifamily. And that the affordability problem is not just an income issue, it's a change in the demographics of the nation, which is that usually you benefit from two incomes in the household to pay your bills. But because of the fact that we're meeting our life partner later in life, typically, we're we have many more households which are educated, urban, but do not have the benefit of two incomes. And how do we solve that problem? Yep. I love it. Okay. So what you're basically saying is all these units that we keep producing have all these unnecessary features, additional square footage, things that you might have built for kids to, you know, have space. And so a lot of Americans are would be much happier in a smaller unit, aka what you're providing. They don't need all this extra fluff that they end up paying for along the way. Let me caveat that a little bit. Okay. Which is to say that like I don't, you know, do you fly private or commercial, Chris? Commercial. I've flown Why private. Why don't you before. fly private? It's so much better. <laughs> well, because it's more expensive. Usually, most people just say they can't afford it. Yeah. Right. So I hope it sounds like you're doing pretty well, Chris. It's, it's, but it's, it's not like, yeah, I can't afford it. But, but the same idea with housing is everybody, if given the option, would you like to live at Versailles or this micro unit? Most people will take Versailles but the, or a chateau or whatever. But the idea is that if given the choice, like, would you like to not have housing? Or would you like to commute for two hours? Or would you like a micro unit? The answer is the micro unit. Or would you rather have, you know, keep in mind, if you make $68,000 a year, after you pay rent, taxes, and food, you have $43 of discretionary income, okay? Before you buy a latte or a beer, okay? And so if given the choice, like, oh, I want to save money on my housing so I can do more fun stuff. And I think fundamentally at that stage of life, you're not in nesting mode you're in experience mode. So what we're trying to do is 
enable people to have more discretionary income for experiences rather than the nest. Got it. All right. I promised everybody we're going to get inside the unit now. Let's talk about the size of these units that you're building. What do they like? How, what, what comes in them? Does it, is it just like, is a 250 unit micro unit, a 250 square foot micro unit offer the same things that a 700 square foot one bedroom unit offers? So take me through kind of what you've designed and how you've been able to keep your cost at 250K a unit. Great. Thank you, Chris. So the way I thought of it is, and you know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Southwest Airlines, Chris, or Herb Kelleher. Oh, yeah. But that guy's my idol. I love and that I can't guy. Read, I can't read very well <laughs> because I'm dyslexic, but somehow <laughs> I got through his autobiography. And it's so simple. Like, look, people just want to go from point A to point B. They don't care about the grapes on the plate. Just get them from point A to point B. And so we wanted to create what felt like a premium experience, okay? And since I designed homes for people that were not all billionaires, but relatively affluent, I loved the look on their face the day they moved into the house where they felt like I made it, right? Like I loved it, right? It was like, it was such a good feeling. How do I create a place that feels great and is then functional? And have you ever been through a home with your wife, Chris? Usually the guy's like, this is awesome. And the wife's like, okay. Can I put my stuff away? Is the closet big enough? Yeah. Does it actually work? <laughs> Does it actually work? Is there a laundry room here? And so anyway, so what I came up with was an MVP for what everybody needs in their personal space. Okay. And it needs to feel like home, which is about design, the aesthetic, the art, all that stuff. And you got to have a place to sleep, a place to put your stuff away. And, you know, I had this woman named Natri Marini, who was my client. She's like, yes, I need storage. I need storage. I'm like, Natri, I got it. You need storage. But I designed so many closets for women. I was like, okay, I got this down to a science at this point. When you're this old, it's this big, I mean, et cetera. So, but it, what's the closet looks like? You know, a bathroom area, food prep area, living space, workspace. And what I basically figured out, we, we can get that down to about 250 square feet, but it really feels good at about 325 square feet. And then we furnished most of the units, Chris, because Basically, what we found is by providing the furniture, many of our customers don't have the capital to go buy furniture. It's not because it's just because they, they haven't accumulated enough capital and to make a four to five thousand dollar one time expenditure. And it's not a good use of capital. Reason number one. Reason number two is by designing the furniture, we can actually get the units to work better. So, so basically, you know, the five foot couch, we can get three people on it, the queen size bed, and getting all those pieces to work together well makes you need less space without there being a perception of it being small. And so, and, you know, many architects going back to like people like Frank Lloyd Wright would design the furniture. You know, that may have had more to do with ego. In our case, it has to do with making the function of the space work well. Yep. Our primary use unit type is the studio. It's underused because we're trying to create privacy for people in their home, for people who would normally live with roommates. Okay. But the reality is not everybody lives in just 300 square feet. So we have junior one bedrooms at around 400 square feet. We have one bedrooms at 400 square feet. And then we have two bedrooms at about five, 600 square feet. So the idea is that we have these different unit types that are all 20, 25% smaller and cost 20, 25% less. But it's the cheapest option in the category, in the category each time. So I want to be priced at the bottom of the studio's bottom of the ones, bottom of the twos from a new construction point of view, and the customers having to compromise a little bit on space. Yeah. But we're trying to make up for that space with good design. 
right? Yeah. And and would you just get? And I know it's in your deck, but what's your studio on average below the market compared to others? Ten percent, twenty percent, twenty eight percent. Yeah. So if you compare, Boom. if we compare, if, if you if you compare us to in the Oakland Berkeley quarter, it would be twenty eight percent, and we'd be thirty five percent below the Bay Area average. Yep. That is fantastic. That's the do good part. Do, that's the do good part. That's the do good mom, part. Mom, I did that for you. Hey, mom. Well, you got more affordable rent, okay? <laughs> Look at me, mom. All right. On the furniture, I actually it's like just. like diaper ad. <laughs> Mommy, wow. I'm a big kid now. You are the big kid now. Everyone who works for me thinks that. I love it. I'm sure they all, they all say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I actually just had a guy, Bobby Feehan, on my podcast whose life's mission is that every apartment in America should be furnished. He thinks it's a crime that we've, we build things that are not furnished. You're doing that. So I've, I've, I just have some questions on furniture, and then I want to talk about what's actually in the unit. Do these tenants have to put a deposit down because you're pre-furnishing it? Or is this just something you're offering? You know, deposits are very different now because you have all these different... I mean, every fintech company has a different way to finance your, yeah. you know, the pen on your desk. So right you now, know, VCs are, are yeah, VC subsidized deposits for right now. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a big believer when there's venture philanthropy available, we should all take use of it. That used to be that great service where they'd go park your car for you. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, so no, we may, we have a standard deposit. Someone can either finance their deposit by going to one of these fintech companies or we provide a deposit and we, we do market rate deposits. Do you have like a manufacturer, one that you work with and you send them the plans each time and say design or like how, how would somebody getting into the industry have furniture designed for them? So in the, so in one unit type that we've developed, what I tried to do was limit the amount of upholstered furniture. And so that if something fails, the only thing that's going to fail is the couch. Then we have the couch is fundamentally the same size across all units so that we're a volume buyer. So instead of going down to Pottery Barn or West Elm and buying, you know, a full retail product, we can go to either to the wholesale division or in some cases direct to the factory and say, look, we're going to buy a thousand beds or a thousand couches or a thousand of whatever. And we want you to give us, you know, effectively wholesale, direct wholesale price. So you can't make anything more cost-effective that you don't standardize. And so what we try and do, the standardizing of the Legos you know, that we are doing is fundamentally so you can standardize how the units come together and standardizing the interiors of the units. Got it. All right. We'll get right back to where you were now. Design and the layout of the actual space. So when I think of a 325-square-foot unit, Am I still getting a kitchen, a bathroom, a bed, a living room? Like, what am I getting and what am I maybe not getting that a 700-square-foot unit would get? So let, let's keep things in the range of normal for a second. So like a 325-square-foot unit, studios really stop occurring once you cross 500 or 550 square feet. Okay, right? cool. So basically, so we're at like 325, and a... A studio really becomes a one bedroom around five or 550. So let's just deal with that bandwidth. So, and what we've focused on are these six zones of functionality. So, you know, because of COVID, people are working from home. So we've got a desk. Because of COVID, not because, and then before that, you still have a closet and all that stuff. So, one of the areas that you may or may not have is in many cases, the way we design the units is the desk or the work area and the eating area 
are somewhat designed to go back and forth between each other. And in some of our designs, you'll have a separate work, separate eat. In some of our designs, you'll have one or the other. Because just because you only can afford, let's call it in the Bay Area context, $1,700 for rent, doesn't mean, Chris, you and I are the same guy. So one person may be like, you know, you may be the shopaholic. You may have lots of clothes, Chris. I don't know. I've been to your closet yet. I am a workaholic, so I want to have a big desk, right? So within that 325 square feet, we always hit all six, but we may make one closet bigger or one desk bigger or so that basically it appeals to different use cases. Okay. As you get bigger, call it 450 square feet, what changes? So once you get to 450 square feet, one thing we're really working very hard on is to separate the sleeping space from the social space. So you'll have a bedroom area, which is across from your closet. You'll have your bathroom area and kitchen, and then you'll have like a living area that you can hang out in. And when you, in the same, depending on where the unit's positioned in the building, that bedroom area could be its own separate bedroom or an alcove. When we get to 550 square feet, we can get it to a two-bedroom, two-bath. We're very focused in design and architecture. You always talk about this tension between form and function. And when you're building a home for you know successful guys like Chris Powers, you spend a lot of time on the form. When we're building things that are trying to be more affordable, we spend a little more time on the function. And what we try and do is be very function-focused without ignoring the importance of form. In other words, how it feels. And we've also found, Chris, one more thing is like, there's a point where you make it too small. Like we built a couple of these units, they're 185 square feet. And you feel like you're like, I don't know, like, you know, like Austin Powers. Oh, I fell over yeah. again. Oh, I fell over again. <laughs> and you're like, you know, th- 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 there are moments where that can be helpful, but it's not a d- way to live your daily life. Yes. For the record, do you know how many times growing up somebody would ask me, is your uncle Austin Powers? Is your dad Austin Powers? So thanks you're for- lucky you got fucking sorry, you got <laughs> Austin Powers. I got Bill Murray. So you look like Bill Murray. It's like uh, I'm obnoxious to you too one day. <laughs> the other person I've gotten is that guy from The Prophet. Like people come to me like, I'm such Marcus a Lemonis. Dude, I was going to tell you actually, you look exactly like Marcus yeah. Lemonis. And I people love Marcus. Like, yeah. People go, You're, I'm such a big fan. I'm like, God, that's really nice of you. I, I didn't realize I'd done anything to deserve fans. That is so funny. Like, oh, yeah. No, not that guy. <laughs> I built little apartments for people. I hope you'll be my fan. A common thread of like everything we've talked about is you're a designer. So I just have a couple of questions there. And one is maybe more macro. Is the world, if you just had to make a prediction on like 20 years from now, with costs and inflation and like, you know, the need to be more urban. Are we headed into a world where everything is going to be smaller and more efficient? Somebody was telling me the other day that like before the internet came out and before we had all these cool gadgets and tech, the way that people flexed was kind of building big stuff, bigger house, bigger this, bigger that. And now in the new generation, it's showing that people really don't care about as much space. They just want cool stuff. If you just said like, across all categories, are we headed to a more efficient, smaller space world? Or is it still going to be kind of, you know, the the billionaires are going to do their thing and everybody else is not? Or how do you think about that? Well, let's start with the billionaires because that's very, that's an easy one. They'll always do what they want to do. They're going to do what they want. Fair enough. Check, done. We'll leave them out. You know, you know, my stepdad, you know, has this line, which is like, you know what the difference is between a billionaire and a terrorist? <laughs> 
you could negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> so I think when you you're trying to save the world by getting billionaires yeah. to uh, act better, that's probably not a good way forward. Fair right? enough. For the rest of us, right? Look, I, I think that the where was the world headed pre-COVID, and what is technology going to do? And the other strain is what is the need to reduce our carbon footprint going to do? So unquestionably pre-COVID, there was a huge move to the city, whether it's New York or San Francisco, doesn't matter. The city made a comeback in the 19, from the 1990s forward. And so I think that trend was very much there pre-COVID. And I personally am a believer, like, I don't know about you, Chris, but like, I can't imagine someone graduating from Harvard or Stanford and be like, you know what? I'm going to go live in... Boise, Idaho. Yeah. That's where I think it's happening these days, yeah. right? I just don't see it, right? Now, yeah. if people want to go live in Boise, Idaho, I have nothing against Boise, Idaho, but it doesn't seem like an exciting place to spend your 20s. So I think that trend to urbanism will return. The second one is technology, right? In terms of how do you flex that? And I think this is the question of ownership versus use versus access is really the question. I think that one of my big mentors has this line, you know, about city car share wheels when you want them, but not where you want, which is, I think people's desire for convenience doesn't go away. I don't think ownership is the concept, which is important. I think the combination of the energy people get from cities, technology facilitating flexibility of space and use and sharing, and the need to reduce our carbon footprint. And my stepdad wrote a book with Mike Bloomberg, which was like, was about how cities, companies, and individuals can save the planet. Is your stepdad Al Gore? My stepdad's a guy named Carl Pope. Oh, okay. And they wrote a book together. It was in the New York Times bestseller. But fundamentally, all of us in our different roles have the power to reduce the carbon footprint. And I don't personally do as good of a job as I should, but I try. But a big part of the solution is urbanization. New York is America's greenest city on a per capita basis. So making cities livable, making transport easy, and making urban housing solutions both affordable and desirable is important on all three of these metrics. And so COVID really derailed a big part of that. And part of my what I hope will be part of my public sector work over the next few years is how do we make the Bay Area this utopia that it's been for the last 50 years, right? Where it's this beautiful place to live, very equitable. We want to make it a lot more affordable and so that more people can come live here. Yep. And we're going to, I have a question where you get to defend the Bay Area and tell everybody why it's great, but we're going to get there in a second. If you were like just teaching somebody that just got into real estate, because you've designed a lot of things, everything you've said is you're almost like a first principles designer. You've developed houses, you're now doing apartments, and and then you talked about function and form. So maybe you've already answered the question, but what, and let's just maybe keep it into apartments. Like what are most people getting wrong still? Is it that they're just taking stock plans that have been around forever and just redoing them? Like what would you tell somebody is like, here are some simple things to think about before you develop your next building? So I think the first thing in design is who am I doing this for? And what do they care about and what's important to them? And I think when you're design, I think the first thing that you can do to reduce cost or desirability is who's my customer and get away from the bell-shaped curb thinking of the world. Like, oh, we designed it for everybody. No, that just means you designed it for nobody. I think that's step number one. I think step number two is 
understanding the whole process of what it's going to take to pull together your building, not just the piece that you may know the best. And, you know, in my career, I really appreciate being, having been a finance guy, a design guy and a construction guy, right? I would say that's number two. And then number three is, look, it's pretty simple math. You got the apartment, okay? The apartment is so big, okay? <laughs> There's all these other areas in the building where nobody's living, you know? The club room, the parking lot, the pool, the gym. And you have to decide which of those things add value and which of those things are fundamentally a tax on house. So I built a building, 78,000 square feet, okay? This thing looks like a barn, okay? It's like as efficient as most building gets. I have 52,000 square feet of rentable and 26,000 square feet of other stuff, okay? Because of the parking, okay? And hallways and elevators, et cetera. If I load in the roof deck, it's even worse. But, but the idea is that all that other stuff is a 50% tax on house. So I would say like, okay, what are the ways that you can make your building more efficient? What are the ways that you can build it with wood? And what are the ways that you can make it a cool place to live by being creative, right? And I had this awesome mentor. I built this hotel called Indian Springs in Calistoga. And their names were John and Pat Merchant. They'd always tell me, Riaz, just do that creative thing. And so one of the things that we've integrated into all of our projects is whether we have a public art requirement or not, is public art. So someone can identify the building. The building looks cool. But I would say those are the three things. Who's the customer? How are you going to build it? And what's going to be involved in the whole process? And how do you cut out space and components that you may or may not need? I loved how you put that. It's just a ta- it's a tax. Okay, I'm going to flip the question a little bit. Clearly, your do good in in life, at least right now, is to provide you know housing that's more attainable for more folks. If uh, it's kind of like a, if you were president for a, a day, question, and you had call it a couple things that nobody. That if you said it was going to happen, it was going to happen. Nobody could stop you. What are a couple things that you would do that could really make at scale housing more attainable again? Look, we just need more, not complicated. So what are the two biggest cost functions? Right. So you have on the cost side, you have the complexity of permitting. So I think the first one is, look, every city, just decide what it is you're going to build and move away from unit-based zoning to volume-based zoning. And if you're building that volume on that site, everybody in their hat cannot go complain about it. Step one. Step two on the construction side is prioritizing getting things built over who gets to earn a margin in that process. And number three, which is probably the one that will have the biggest impact on actually doing things, and Bloomberg did a great job of this in New York, is if you provide a certain amount of moderate income or low-income housing, giving a 10-year property tax holiday. And the way to think about this is, if you think about the three essentials, food, water, shelter. In most states, we do not tax you, Chris, when you buy food, do we? No, you go to the store, you buy a whatever, steak, right? They don't tax you. When you buy power, if you buy the base case of power, you pay virtually nothing for it. Housing, when you pay your rent, most people are paying an additional tax, okay? So if you think about it, if you make 80 grand a year, your marginal tax rate in California between state and federal is 27%. If you add in the tax that's embedded within your rent, you're actually paying closer to 41, 42%. So the idea is like, okay, the biggest thing we could do is stop taxing housing up to a certain level 
and that's probably too much to think could happen, but let's just give new construction buildings that provide a certain amount of moderate income and low-income housing a 10-year tax holiday. It doesn't matter if the for-profit industry did it. It doesn't matter if it's a moderate income project. It doesn't matter if it's built by the affordable housing industry. We should be giving those projects a property tax holiday. It'll just create more of it. It's not complicated. I'm going to vote for you if you run. I'm, I'm very happy to have my first vote in my uh, candidacy for president in 2024. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right. Back to when we went through your presentation a couple of weeks ago, I just thought you did a really good job of framing the Bay Area up and why it's important. Obviously, I think it's getting some flack right now. We deserve a lot of it. Let's be clear. Yeah. And, you know, again, I think I told you, I, I, I haven't been in a while, but I used to love going to San Francisco. So I have great memories there. But give me some of the big points. Why is the Bay Area still really important at a time when maybe people are trying to write it off? Yeah. So I think that like, look, I think this point, I'm all, I have a degree in economic history. So I was like, what's this the most comparable to that we can all remember? And it's 2001. And in 2001, just to paint a little picture, it was literally like that nuclear bomb went off in South of Market and everybody ran for the door as fast as possible. I think Amazon was trading at three bucks a share. Basically, all of our companies became very, and Amazon is obviously a Seattle-based company, but all of our companies were very, were decapitalized. And your stock price is a currency. You can always sell more of it to get cash. So basically, venture funding, basically went to zero, you know, metaphorically. And the stock price of all, and the NASDAQ crashed by what was it, 80%? So all our companies had a very little, had their capital base crushed. And it took the Bay Area 13 years to recover to 2001 levels of employment. So how is that somewhat different than today? And I have a couple of anecdotes. The first one is venture funding. The Bay Area took in a hundred, is took in $88 billion of venture funding by the third quarter of this year and is anticipated to take in $100 billion by the end of 2021. That's a lot of money. I think with $100 billion, you can hire at least one person. I know people are getting expensive, but you can hire one person. But how does $100 billion compare to the last peak year? The last peak year is 2018. It's $66 billion. The year in which everyone thinks the Bay Area is over, we have raised 50% more dollars to Bay Area-based companies than in any year in our history. That doesn't seem like everyone's running for the door. I think the second thing to remember is like, and now we're going to take a shot at Austin. At the last five years, if you take the top 10 venture markets, Austin isn't even on the list, okay? The Bay Area represents 53% of venture dollars over the last five years. So what's the point? The point is that the Bay Area is the innovation capital of the world. And Google now has offices in every city in the world. Apple has offices in every city in the world. Facebook has offices in every city in the world. But all these companies started here because the incubation infrastructure for starting a company in terms of talent and capital and will ability to fail is best set up here in the Bay Area. And that is even proving to be true in a year in which everyone wants to write this place off. The other thing to remember is, I don't know if anybody has an iPhone, this thing, or I don't know if anyone's been on Google today. And I know everyone likes to pretend they don't use Facebook, but that thing you guys call, use called Instagram, it's not a Coke dealer. It's actually owned by Facebook, right? And for people in the rest of the world that realize that text message sucks, that thing, WhatsApp, that's also Facebook. 
So this idea that ideas come from here and go to the world is not new. And, you know, three of you look at the FANG companies, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, and Google, what share of those are based here in the Bay Area? And all of these companies have hired a very significant number of people, but not requested that they come to work yet. So there's a tremendous amount of employment demand sitting on the sidelines that I believe will start to show up in 2022. And one thing everybody can say is the office is dead. Yeah, if nobody's at the office, there's no point to go there. But at some point, if your manager's at the office or the CEO's at the office, sometimes it can be helpful to get FaceTime with those people to advocate for your ideas, your solutions, et cetera. And when everybody's on Zoom, yeah, it's easy to work from home. But the more people are in the office, if you're not the one in the room, to quote Hamilton, you know, in the room when it happened, in the room when it happened, your idea may not be the one that won the day. And so I think as it relates to the rental world, the amount of venture funding and the amount of hiring by our core companies, as those people are required to come to the office, not five days a week, I don't think that's coming back, but even one day a week, will have a tremendous impact on the rental market in the Bay Area. I love it. All right. I want to end the conversation on on just kind of like capital. It's the second word in the title of your company is capital and you have an opportunity zone fund. So real quick, how do you all raise funds? Is it deal by deal or is it a is it a fund? And then I want to talk a little bit about um, opportunity zones. So we raise money every way we can is the answer to the question. So we've done both funds and single asset vehicles. Right now we're raising a fund. Predominantly, we've been funded by... High- friends and family. We have a total of, I think, almost four to 500 friends and family on our platform. 70% of our investors, for example, in our last fund were returning investors. And when we say friends and family, like, look, I think one of my biggest investors, I think our family has been friends for almost a hundred years. My grandma and his grand, his mom, sorry, were friends in Bombay. I think, you know, in the night, it's not a hundred years, but in the 1930s and 1940s. And so the idea that like, our thought on investing is like, you know, my family is the biggest investor in everything we do, pretty much, is how, you know, in terms of how we think about risk, is the idea, it's like, look, the people who's in money I'm investing predominantly is the people I go to dinner with every night, whether it's my family or my friends. And what would I do with my capital and those people's capital that I'm confident, you know, I may not hit the target every time, but I'm pretty confident I'm not going to create a disaster. And we have not had a single deal with investor capital lose money in the 45 years that my dad and I've had the company. And we've not been late on a single loan payment. So the philosophy that my dad ingrained into me and that I very much carried forward because of the relationships I developed was, you know, investor capital and your own capital. This is your, these aren't investors. These are your buddies, right? You don't want to lose your buddies' money because they're sure as hell not going to invite you out for a beer afterwards. I know. You got to see them at Thanksgiving dinner and yeah, and I love going for drinks in the evening. So if nobody wants to go for drinks with me, I'll be very bored. I'm going to come have a drink with you when I when I'm a I fun come. guy to have a drink with, I promise. I can tell. I can tell. Okay, why are you raising a fund then? Why this time are you raising a fund? Well, you know, I think with with Opportunity Zones, I think these things got misbranded. You know, from a national point of view, this is a great opportunity for people to take their capital and do something good with it. And it's not just that you as an investor will save capital, but these zones are areas of the country that need capital. And Opportunity Zones were originally designed for companies, and we added real estate in order for those areas to be able to build infrastructure to facilitate those companies. And majority of the capital has flown into real estate, okay? 
in the case of our fund, we are raising capital to build housing fundamentally in the same two neighborhoods or three neighborhoods or four neighborhoods or et cetera, that my family and I have operated in since the 1990s. So basically where we are based became an opportunity zone, literally. So we really didn't change anything about our business model. From an investor point of view, it's very it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. You get to invest into real estate through the tax advantages of something that fundamentally looks like a Roth IRA. Pay a little bit of tax on the way in the door, and then you pay no tax on the appreciation of your investments over the next, as long as you hold it for 10 years. So if you have a position in one company called Apple or Facebook, you can sell some of your Apple or Facebook stock, not take very much tax leakage, and then redeploy that capital and not pay any capital gains or and fundamentally income tax at the federal level for a 10 years, right? That's incredible. So what I'm doing for myself, Chris, and you know, I recommend you do it too, is I'm selling buildings that I bought a decade ago that I fundamentally don't want to own anymore, but I never would have taken the tax hit. And I'm saying, look, I'll take a ta- little bit, little tax hit now, but then for the next, you know, this program lasts until 2047. For 25 more years, I get to invest my capital tax-free for 25 years. And in real estate, this is fundamentally a long-term hold investment. You don't invest in, it's, it's not for day traders, right? And so what I learned from whether it was my dad or Oz Erickson or all these mentors that I had in real estate is you buy something and you hold it for a long time. The opportunity zone is totally aligned to that. And that's my investment philosophy. And so the idea that I can buy something or build something and own it for 25 years and not pay any tax for that whole period of time, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity from a purely selfish point of view. And in our case, you're building affordable housing. So you get to not pay taxes, you get to make money, and you get to build housing for people. It seems like a win-win. You're doing good, my man. Thanks, Chris. Okay, what are we having a drink? But I'm an LP. I sold something this year and, and I really did. I've got a big tax bill coming up. You have a fund. I can say, hey, IRS, I'm putting money into Riaz's Opportunity Zone fund. I kind of show that on my tax return or whatever. You probably have a document that shows that I'm now an LP with you. And now any, you know, you said I pay my little leakage up front, but any tax I would pay now, I can defer for 10 years. And then the capital gains that I make off my LP, I don't pay, period. Let me help with that for a second. So let's pretend you made a million bucks because you seem like a real successful kind of guy. You keep saying that. You you got that successful look to you, Chris. So you have a gain in 2021. You get to defer by investing in in our fund. You would get to defer your tax bill until December 31st of 2026. It's a five-year deferral. That date is a fixed date in the legislation. Is on that date, you get to pay your taxes at the federal level at 90 cents on the dollar. If you stay in the investment, which is the way we're structured for 10 years, we're it's a 10-year vehicle, you do not pay any taxes on the appreciation of our in, your investment. You also do not pay what's known as depreciation recapture tax, which fundamentally is what makes the de- distributions tax-free, right? So basically, it's a deferral of the sale of your original investment. And it's a elimination of your tax liability on the investment with us. This is really exciting tax stuff. What does it actually translate to? What it means is that you're basically going to pay, you're going to save, you know, for example, if, you could, if we could triple your money, you would pay half a million dollars less in taxes investing with us than the equivalent investment. 
So you get what's known as a tax adjustment to your investment, which makes the tax adjusted return you know, pretty attractive. So if I was trying to decide how much money I wanted to put in your Opportunity Zone fund, and maybe this is me live asking you to be an LP, how would I know, assuming that money was an issue, and it is, but I'm more trying to figure out like if I know what my tax liability is now if I do nothing, is there like a mathematical equation that goes, hey, if I put this much into Riaz's Opportunity Fund, I'm now pushing out that tax? You know what I mean? Whenever you're making an investment decision, Chris, I think you should ask yourself three questions. The first one, I'm making this investment first and put taxes as a number. Yes. First is because I like the investment. Yes. Well, the first one is people invest unless you're very wealthy to solve one of three problems, home, kids, education, and retirement. We fundamentally fit within the retirement bucket where you take some of your capital and convert it to passive income. So the question, first question you want to ask yourself, do I have enough passive income, enough fixed income, enough real estate? The second question you'd ask yourself is, oh, what share of my capital do I want allocated to real estate or fixed income? Because real estate is really a fixed income alternative. And then the third question you'd ask yourself is how much of your portfolio within real estate do you want allocated to multifamily? My fundamental advice to people, if you're not in the real estate industry and you're investing into real estate for passive income, you really should be very cautious about doing anything that is not multifamily because the truth about multifamily, everybody needs a place to live. So you may not have built it in the perfect space. So my advice to people who think about our fund is like, do you need passive income? Do you need? Do you want more real estate exposure? And do you want to invest in multifamily? Then, okay, let's pretend you're going to invest a million dollars. If someone puts in a million dollars, you know, our goal is to produce 11% cash on cash on average over a period of the hold and to fundamentally triple your money over that period of time before taking into account any of the tax benefits. So fundamentally, the returns we're generating in this tax preferred fund are fundamentally no different than the returns we were projecting in the funds that we were raising prior to the opportunity. But I guess, and again, maybe you're not a CPA and I shouldn't be asking this, but let's just say I had a million dollar tax liability. If I do nothing, the government's going to ask for a million dollars from me this year. If I- A little bit different. You think about it as a taxable gain. You have a million dollar taxable gain. Uncle Sam is taking 240. If you invest with me, instead of investing 750 plus or minus, you get to invest a million. So you get to invest- a third more dollars. So a big part of the benefit you're getting by investing, Chris, is you get to invest a third more dollars. Uncle Sam is fundamentally giving Chris Powers a free loan for five years where you get to compound that capital. That is a huge part of the value of the Opportunity Zone. Yep. So so yes, you just named it. If I gave you my entire gain that year, I wouldn't have to pay that 250 or whatever and for five more years, but I'd also be able to earn off that 250 four or five years. And then when we go to sell in 10 years, I'm not paying any capital gains on that million dollars that I invest with you, assuming that you 3X my money. And there's Chris, no depreciation. Come work here. I'm coming, Riaz. I'm coming, I'm com- baby. Bring it, baby. <laughs> Johnny, my producer's coming too. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> Maybe Johnny will remind me to plug in my computer before a podcast. <laughs> No, that was the best explanation I've gotten. That, that's that is if anybody's listening cannot understand how opportunity zone works. That that was kind of one on one. That that's really what I wanted. All right, man. 
this has been awesome. I'm so glad that we we met. I'm stoked. I can't wait to meet uh, you in person sometime. When do we get to have a beer? I'm, I don't really drink beer, I'm going to be honest with you. But what do I you love drink? And wine. What do you drink? Huh? Tequila? I'm a big fan of white wine, if I'm going to be honest with you. Okay. And these little tequila lime drinks, they're delicious. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my buddy also a solid. I could bring a bottle of his tequila. It's called Fletcher Azul. He's, he's a big investor in there. So maybe I could bring that or I'll do Where whatever you, from you want. Where are you from in Texas, Chris? I'm from Fort Worth. I'm, oh, I was born in El Paso. I live in Fort Worth now. Cool. Well, let's find a place to meet up and get a drink. This was really fun. I really appreciate you inviting me on. This was this was fantastic, fun. man. What you're doing is awesome. It's clear that you know exactly what you're doing and what you're solving is a huge problem. So kudos to you, man. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.